Amen. You can take your seats, everybody. Um, I want to express my gratitude to you all who have been praying for us, the leadership of the church, for the elders, uh, the staff. Um, and, and for me, I had asked for that for a couple of weeks ago. And, and about a, 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 sometime last week, a fellow came up to me and said, can you feel it? And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, we're praying for you. And I said, now that you mention it, I actually can. And here's how it manifested itself in me. I asked for prayer specifically about these texts because I found them so challenging and try to figure out, first of all, to figure them out, and then how do you preach them? And um, as a result, there was a sort of confidence in God that he was going to get me through this because if he got me through this, it wouldn't hurt you. You know what I mean? So you actually are ending up praying for yourself, which is really a good thing. So I, I appreciate it. But keep it up because... You know, keep praying for Jamie because he's not back yet. Uh, won't be for a, uh, three, four more weeks. And uh, we want God to do some amazing things in him, in his life, in his family while he's on sabbatical. Well, if you have your Bibles and you want to open them, we can open them to Revelation 22, verse 1. We're going to look at the five verses, first five verses of the chapter. And this is the last, <clears throat> pardon me, the last of this mini-series in a revelation about the new heavens and the and the new earth uh, everything that john has said um, from the very beginning of the book of revelation has been leading up to this point uh, and this is sort of the loud crescendo at the end of a masterful piece of music it's just the big finish and that's the way that uh, it strikes me as as i was reading it um, you know, he starts out with a little overture, and overtures, like in a lot of musicals or ballets, they, they hit many of the themes that the author is going to touch along the way. And then we saw the glory of the church, and we saw the glory of God in Christ and the Lamb of God in heaven. And now is, is, is this, this glorious picture of an amazing end to history that should thrill our hearts. Um, in uh, a previous sermon, I mentioned a, a bit of a dialogue between Samwise Gamgee and Gandalf from The Lord of the Rings. And it's just this line that Tolkien just sort of captured the essence, really, of Revelation. And it is, Samwise says to Gandalf, will everything, become, will everything sad now become untrue? And the answer to that question in Revelation is yes. Yes. Revelation is a book with happy endings. If you don't like happy endings, if you're that jaded, don't read the book or else change your mind. And I hope God will change your mind when I'm done with you. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these chapters 20, uh, and, uh, 21 and 22 and how they have opened our thinking about the new heavens and the new earth. You are right when you say, I hasn't seen or ear hasn't heard the, the wonders that you have planned for your people. And that's true. But we are so enjoy seeing a glimpse. And we pray that you will teach us what we need to know by this today. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Now, every sadness in the world today has its origins in the catastrophic event of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, where God pronounced a curse on Adam and Eve and the fall took place. It was, a, it was I'm calling it a great catastrophe. 
But here we see, here we see the vision of John, of the vision of Christ, who is victorious in the summation of all history. From Genesis 1 all the way up to this point, everything in history, everything in history is moving to this place. And in this place, God then receives this glory for accomplishing salvation through the final judgment and uh, living now with his elect saints from all times and all nations. So let's remind ourselves one last time why John is writing this vision to the churches. Why is he sending it to them? Well, because the churches in his day were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. The Roman government was cracking down on the church and in fact declared the church of Jesus Christ an enemy of society. The second reason that John was writing to them is because there were doctrinal disputes going on in the, in the churches, not, not just disputes, but even heresies, and it was hurting and harming uh, the gospel in those churches. And so John was warning them about these things, but also showing them this picture of this victorious Christ in order that they might have fuel to keep on, keep on believing, to keep the faith, to not give up. And God's purpose for them is our purpose as well. These scenes are meant to increase our faith, our spiritual grip on Jesus and to keep ourselves grounded in God's word as our shield from the lies that the world tells us and tries to pull us away from faith in Christ. Now, this final scene that we're going to look at isn't just a, a new Eden, but a better Eden. So we have the Garden of Eden. We're going to go back and look at that a little bit. But we also have the new Eden, which is a new and better Eden in three different ways. And the first way is that this new and better Eden reverses the catastrophe of the first Eden. We are told exactly why it happened and how it happened. The second thing we find out is that God restores the ideal for communion with his people. He is now he is now present with the people that he has saved. And finally, the removal of the curse that we have been living under ever since Genesis 3. So let's look at the catastrophe of the first Eden. We'll, we'll, we'll take a look at what John writes first. He said, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. So what we're seeing here, we even saw in the original Garden of Eden. If you, if you recall, if you want to go back there and take a look in chapter 2, there, was, there were two trees in the Garden of Eden and a river. In Eden, the river says bubbled up from a spring and flowed out from the Garden of Eden to water the earth, and they separated into four different uh, rivers. Um, the Tigris, Euphrates were two of them. The other two, we don't know where they are. Um, they don't exist anymore, obviously. Um, but the end is just like the beginning. So let's unpack these this, this two images that are here, the, the river and the trees. We might think that this river disappears from the the uh, whole Bible until we get to Revelation. Like it, it shows up in Genesis and we don't see it again until Revelation. That is actually not the case. The case is this, that it bubbled up out of Eden, or out of the ground in a spring, flowed through the earth, and now when we come 
to the book of Ezekiel, we see that river again. Now, this is an Old Testament prophet whom God showed almost the same river, the same kind of river that John is looking at. Look what it says. This is Ezekiel 47. I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other side. And wherever the river goes, everything, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. Good news for fishermen, right? For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. But they will, hear, they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. So already there's some similarities and there's some differences. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So we have a river in, in, in um, the garden, flows up from a spring and flows out into the world. Here we have the river showing up in Ezekiel, but this time it flows out of the temple of God. That's the vision that Ezekiel was looking at, was the temple of God. And he saw this river flowing out into all of creation, all of creation. And the marvelous thing he said about this river is that wherever it went, it turned everything alive and fresh. Can you imagine a river flowing into the Atlantic no more salt water. I got a mouthful of salt water this, this week when I was at the beach, and I was hoping for this river to show up. That was a pretty nasty, I didn't, gallop, didn't swallow it, but it was awful. And so this river has healing properties in it. It waters the trees, which have healing properties in the leaves. We'll talk a bit more about that. But it's flowing out of the throne of God. Now, I, I, I read this, and I thought, okay, so... God is going to show this river along the way. It's going to be in Genesis and in Ezekiel. It's, I know it's going to show up somewhere else before it ever gets to Revelation. What's the point? What does God want us to know about this river? Is that all right? Well, let me think. This has got to have something to do with God. And here's what, here's what I, I came up with. The first thing is it's a river of life, right? It's the river of life. It gives life wherever it goes. It heals. God is passionate about our well-being. God is passionate about our well-being. And when our relationship with God is right, the rest of our life experiences the well-being of knowing God. Secondly, the river of life reminds us that the work of God in reversing our own personal sin catastrophe is a miracle of grace. Every single one of us, every single one is born into sin. And we need the grace of God to reverse that, to turn that around so that we are made alive in Christ. And third, we're the church. We're the church. And the church is the new temple of God. It's where he dwells. He dwells in the members of the body of Christ on earth. And that means then that we become agents of life and renewal because the world is passing away. It's under the curse of sin and death. But Jesus said that we have a part to play in the story of this river. In John 7, verse 38, this is what Jesus said. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart flows living water. Another picture of that river. So this river is showing up in so many places in the Bible. Now let's ask ourselves, 
What's, a, what's with these two trees? There were two trees in the garden. We only see one tree in Revelation. Now, why is that? Well, the catastrophe that took place took place because there were two trees. There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree that you like, any tree in the garden, any of the fruit on any of those trees. There's this one tree you cannot eat from, and that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from that tree. If you eat from that tree, and the day that you eat it, you will die. Now, you have, to, you have to pause there, and you have to wonder, now, why is God doing this? What is the point of selling his first couple, I don't want you to have knowledge of good and evil? How in the world is this couple supposed to obey God without the knowledge of good and evil? If you don't tell your children the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, how are, you gonna, how are they ever going to know what's right and what's wrong, right? It makes sense. Very logical. And that's exactly the problem. Because God was putting before his couple two ways of living. One way of living meant that they would trust God for this knowledge and this wisdom and this understanding that they needed so that they would know how to please him. That was his plan. He wanted them to come to him in order to be trained in what God understands as wisdom and knowledge and understanding of what is good and evil. That's the way God prescribed for them to walk with him. And that is where the problem lies. Because they looked at the two trees and they said, okay, there's one way, but here's another way. And the other way looks really good. It looks so much better than this way. And that's where they went for that other tree. Now, Jesus said this in also John chapter 7. If anyone wants to know what the will of God is, Obey it, and then you'll know. Obey the will of God, and then you'll know. This was God's principle with Adam and Eve. Obey me, learn from me, and then you will know how to please me. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And the way of gaining wisdom was the pathway of obedience to God. See, God owns all the wisdom there ever is. He is the all-wise God. To get wisdom for living well, we have to go to God. This is what Proverbs says. My son, if you re receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out, that is, call out to me, if you call out for insight and raise your voice in understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then Here's the key. Here's the means of, of learning from God, wisdom, understanding, discernment, and so on. Here's the key. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Obey me and you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We read that so often. And what God was telling his couple to do, you have a choice here. You can you can come to me and you can learn wisdom and, and instruction uh, from me. You can obey me. And by that obedience, you are going to gain the understanding that you need in order to walk with me faithfully in your life. 
But you have this other option over here, and I'm telling you, if you eat it, you're going to die. And what the way we can look at that option is to say, Adam and Eve declared their independence from God for that tree. They would, they, instead of depending on God, they depended on their own wisdom. And don't we live with that in our world today? My truth. My truth is my wisdom. Apart from anything that God has to say about who he is. Now, if we conduct our lives in the fear of the Lord, and what that means is not, you know, uh, terror and, and scared of God or anything like that. We don't use this phrase often, but I think a way of thinking about it is called filial fear. Like we fear authorities, we fear or respect would be a better way. We respect authorities, we respect our fathers, our mothers. And, and, and when uh, uh, we do that, uh, then we we sort of walk together, if you will. You know, there's, there's harmony there. Filial fear, in this sense of the Bible, always moves us towards God. It always moves us in a humble way towards him, in adoration and trust. And then we want to do the things that please God. What do you suppose, you know, after Romans 8.28, which says uh, all things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. What do you think, when, when we face um, a difficult decision, like which way to go, what, which, which way we do? There's a verse that is probably universally quoted by Christians when they face this sort of situation. And it's in uh, Proverbs chapter three. And it says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean or depend on your own understanding Seek his will in all that you do, and he will direct your path. You see, it's right there. When you have a decision to make, you know, which way do I go? What do I do about this? Should we buy this house, or should I take that job, and so on? If, if we sit there and we think, well, I'm going to make a list of pros and cons as our first step, we're missing really the first step, which is, Lean on God. Don't lean on your own understanding, but lean on the understanding. Depend on the understanding of God. And this is the issue. The fear of the Lord teaches us to depend on God, who is all wise, has all wisdom, and presents us with two ways to live. For um, leaning on him or for our own independence. And that's where the, the catastrophe took place, when Adam and Eve declared their independence from God. And they said, no, thank you. We'll do it our way. We're not going to do it your way. Now, what happened at that point, um, you know, we, we know they, they didn't die. But one, in one way, they died. They were dead to God. He said, I'm going to exile you. You are not going to see my face again. And he thrust them out of the garden. This is what kings do, right? Kings banish criminals. They banish them to other places where they have to wander around and, 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 and try to make it for themselves. In fact, I, I just read that in American history, uh, King George III banished 52,000 uh, English criminals. And you know where he sent them? Right here. They were no longer able to see the face of the king, which meant they were out of favor with the king. And so he sent them to the, the colonies of Virginia and um, Maryland. So God... Is, is, is restoring that, but he's also restoring this communion that he had with, with his people from the beginning. And this is verses 4 and 5. 
They will see his face. This is now we're, we're, we're in Revelation. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or the sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Now, the next thing that God does in his new, new and improved Eden, if you want to look at it that way, is to restore the ideal communion that he had with his people. Do you remember how Adam and Eve met with God every day? I think it's really idyllic. It's just one little line, but it sort of conjures up all sorts of imaginative ways of thinking about it. So at the end of the day, Adam and Eve had work to do in the garden. So work is not a part of the fall. I know it feels like that. And there's a reason why it feels like that. But it was still a part of creation. So Adam and Eve had a work to do. They were tending the garden. They were expanding the garden. They were, they were uh, overseeing God's creation. And at the end of the day, you know, four, five o'clock in the afternoon, cool of the day, they're walking in the garden. And then they see God and he's walking towards them. And they're probably having a chat. How did things go in the garden today? Oh, Lord, it's just amazing the things that you can do. And then they would talk over all that they had done, and, and God would talk with them about whatever was on their minds. But there was one day when that didn't happen. That was the day of the catastrophe. That was the day when they ate the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and immediately everything fell apart. In fact, this is so ironic, right? There's trees everywhere with leaves on them. These are leaves for the healing of the nations, and they rip those leaves off in order to hide their nakedness. And they're hiding out from God. God is walking in the garden. Hey, where are you? Adam, where are you? Well, they hid themselves. And that's when they were banished. They would no longer see the face of God. And nobody has seen the face of God uh, since that point. Moses tried and God said no. But now in the new Eden, communion with God is restored in two symbolic ways, and that is seeing God's face, the face-to-face -face communication with God, and his name is written on the foreheads of his people. Now, since the fall, nobody has ever been allowed to see God. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, the pure in heart will see God. Something has changed. In the new heavens, in the new earth, in the new Eden, every heart will be made pure. It says in a previous uh, paragraph that is in chapter 21, we read, no, no impurity will ever come into this place where God is. So what God does with the coming of Christ and the coming down from heaven with the new creation is to give us an indispensable prerequisite for seeing the face of God, and that is his holiness. Now, the opposite of all this, this, this purity, Jesus told us what is the opposite of it, what is the natural inclination of the human heart right now as we live. And he said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. But then our hearts will be cleansed. They will be unstained. They'll be free from those natural, imp natural inclinations um, to, you know, do harm to other people, to get even with us, you know, revenge, being unforgiving, being nasty people all around. And this great transformation takes place because when we see him, John said, we will become like him. That's in 1 John chapter 3. 
We see the face of Jesus, and we see the face that delights in us, not because of anything we've done, but because of who resides in us. There is no greater source of peace. There is no greater source of power in our lives than knowing that God is not frowning at us all day long. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, what matters, though all the world should censure us, is a look of approval from God that creates a deep and delightful calm within the soul, doesn't it? Now, what's with this mark on the foreheads? You know, immediately we think of the mark of the beast, right, on the forehead. Okay. So this is a symbol of saying that that, that mark represents the character that you follow. In the beast, the people who followed the beast got the mark of the beast, and they follow the beast. And they take on the character of the beast, whatever that beast is. Oppressive, everything opposed to God, hating the things of God. All of those people who follow the beast take on that character. Likewise, or in a different way, all of those who get the mark of Christ, the, the mark of the Lamb, are like him. The lamb's character, Jesus' character, is etched on the soul by the finger of God, and we follow him because we become like him. We love the things he loves. We do the things that he does. The mark of the beast, the mark of the beast, the mark of God means that we belong to him. We've taken on his character and his love. And that's what it meant for John to say that God's servants are going to have his mark on them. They're going to have the character of God on them. So this raises the question for us, whose disciples are we? Are we the disciples of Christ or are we the disciples of the world? The etching of Christ's character takes place in this life. It will be completed then, but it still takes place in this life as we behold the glory of Jesus through the word of God and worship, and we are transformed into his image. The whole aim of Christian discipleship is to be changed, to look like Jesus in this life, in his ministry, in his service, in his love. Our pursuit of holiness is God's workshop for our sanctification. And that means we grow up in the likeness of Christ. We kill our sin. We don't love our sin. Any Christian who says, I'm a believer, but I sure love my sin, is not a believer. Believers hate the sin that they commit. And it's true. We still do. We still do. But God gives us the gift of repentance and faith, and we are still his children the entire way. He doesn't kick us off. the. I, I had a friend I talked to a while back. It was a young man, and, and he was having a real struggle believing that God loved him. And I, and I said, well, t can, you, can you describe to me what happens? What's going on? He said, well, I'll tell you. It's like I'm sitting on a four-legged chair, and God is on a swivel chair looking at me. And when I'm doing the right thing, you know, I'm doing my devotions, I'm worshiping, I'm in church, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. He's looking at me with favor. But the minute I don't do that stuff, he turns away, and I don't see him anymore. That's not God. That's a fallen image of God. That's what the serpent wanted Adam and Eve to believe, and he's still at it with us. That is not God. We are trained by the spirit of Jesus. 
in, in the refining fire of his love to grow together in a Christian community. So whose disciple are you? Jesus' disciple or the world's disciple? Now, the catastrophe of the first Eden uh, is reversed. The ideal communion with God is restored. But the final way that the new Eden is better than the old is the removal of the curse. And this is verse 3. I left this out particularly, and I'll explain why. Verses 1 and 2 uh, were like one thought to deal with. And, and verses 4 and 5 were another thought to deal with. And uh, you'll be surprised to know that verse 3 is in the middle. I'm really bright. But verse 3 looked like it was explaining why these two sections are the way they are. And let's read it and we'll find out why. No longer will there be anything cursed. Other translations say there's no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. No more curse. That's the key right there. The reason these glorious and wonderful things are happening is because there is no more curse. You'll remember that God cursed the serpent. And he said, you're going to live in, on your belly and you're going to eat dust forever. And, and Isaiah even confirmed it. It's going to be that way forever. Hallelujah, right? Everybody who hates the snake will be able to go, you're cursed. Stay there. But he also cursed the labor of a, a woman giving birth to a child, didn't he? I, I can't imagine what that would have been like before the fall. You know, no epidurals. That would be great, right, ladies who have given birth? But he also cursed the ground for Adam's sake. And he said to Adam, your work is going to feel like you're powerless because you're going you're to see things grow that you didn't plant. Thistles, thorns, hard labor. There's going to be obstacles to all of your work. You're going to feel futile and powerless in everything that you do from now on. But here's the most chilling thing about the curse. The curse in the Old Testament means to devote something or someone to destruction. To pronounce a curse on someone is to pronounce on them destruction. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we ended the service, and I, and I uh, quoted the uh, Aaronic uh, blessing from Moses, and God told Moses, tell Aaron to bless the people with these words uh, whenever they gather together and let them go out this way. And... Uh, it was it was this. Oh, let me let me skip ahead here. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What a way to end the worship service, knowing that we're leaving under the blessing of God. In 2008, I attended a Together for the Gospel conference. Uh, it, it went on for many years. And one of the main spe speakers was R.C. Sproul. And he uh, preached a sermon I will never forget, ever. In fact, I watched it again this week. Because I, I love it. 
but I'm terrified by what he said. And you can too if you want. If you were to Google, for example, the curse motif, sprawl, it'll take you right to the Together for the Gospel website where you'll find that sermon. It's, in, it's under an hour long. Spurgeon's sermon, uh, Spurgeon, Sproul's sermon was about this curse that we've been living under. How many of you would, let, let's take the, we've been living under the curse test. How many of you would like to have back the knees you had when you were in your 20s? How many of you would like to have 2020 vision once again or for the first time? How many of you would like not flabby arms? See, this is evidence of the curse. I hate to, you know, say this to you. No, I don't. It's, it's really true, right? It's, it's the progress of death. We know we're dying because these horrible things happen to us. Disease, cancers, car accidents, death is a result of the curse. And we're feeling the effects of it every single day, incrementally. Our health deteriorates and we're feeling it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. The blessing of God. It just does something when you hear those words. Sproul said, the curse is the opposite of everything that's in Numbers 6. He said you could invert it, you could turn it around. And you'll understand the curse of God for sinners. It went something like this. May the Lord curse you. May he turn his back on you. May the Lord make his wrath descend on you in fiery anger and destroy you where the worm doesn't die and the fire is never quenched. May the Lord banish you from his presence forever and cast you into the outer darkness where there is continual anguish, no end of weeping, and the gnashing of teeth. That is the curse that God pronounced on all creation and everyone born since Adam. Now, we came to verse 3 in Revelation uh, 22, and remember it said, there's no more curse. So we have to ask, where did it go? Why is it not there? How did it not show up? What did God do so that there is no more curse? Why is there in the new creation now only abundant, unending joy and blessing for the people of God forever? And the answer is that the curse was removed by another tree of life. And Paul tells us about that tree in Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things in the book of the law and do them. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you don't obey the law 100% in detail and in spirit, the moment you don't, the moment you say, I will take that tree, God, not your tree, you are under this curse. 
Now it is evident, Paul goes on to say, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And here is that other tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The curse is gone because the curse and wrath of God descended completely and 100% on Jesus Christ. And in that, the Father, it says in Isaiah 53, was pleased to crush him. He crushed him with the judgment of the curse. He took the judgment on himself, and he fulfilled and satisfied the justice of God. And then God saw this crushing. It pleased him not to crush his son, but because he saw when he crushed his son, there was going to be a multitude of sons and daughters who were going to come to glory as a result of their faith in the Son of God. And he brought glory out of this, this mess to be, to be the, the, the heritage of the saints of God. But the emphasis in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 is on two little words. For us, for us, Jesus was crushed under the weight of the curse of God for us. Make it more personal, for me. He took that curse for me. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. This is not a theological idea. It is that, but it's personal. It's personal. And everyone who believes in the Son of God owns the for me phrase. It's for me. The blessings of Christ's forgiveness now flow from the river of the throne of God. Remember, a spring in the garden, the temple in Ezekiel, and now it flows from the throne of God and the Lamb out to the world, healing the nations and proclaiming the glories of the gospel. You know, one of my favorite um, Christmas uh, carols is um, Joy to the World. It wasn't written for Christmas, and I had a presence of mind. I would have had us sing it because there is a phrase in there that wherever the curse is found, the gospel goes and saves. And that's exactly what we're looking at here. Wherever the curse is found, the reverse of this catastrophe that took place in the Garden of Eden is overwhelmed and, and, and finally removed from all creation. Now, early on, I made a commitment to everyone that I was going to give you 12 reasons to meditate on the riches and the realities of heaven. And that's what this has really all been about, is to unpack these realities of the new heaven and new earth so that we might reflect on them and meditate on them and think about them. Because that's what Paul says to do in Colossians 3, set your mind on the realities of the things above where Christ is seated with honor. Well, there's three more today. That completes the 12, and I have a sheet here that is yours if you want it, out on the uh, Next Steps desk that lists all 12 
of the reasons to meditate on the realities and the riches of heaven. And it even has a little bio in here and where this idea came from because it didn't come from me. So let's look at these last three, these final three reasons why it is good for us as Christians to meditate on the realities of heaven because it shows us that God's heart is for us and not against us. You know, sometimes we doubt God's love for us, like that young man I was talking to that I called it the swivel chair theology of God's love. God's love is always for us, and the most discouraging tactic of the enemy is to tell us that he doesn't love us and that we're not on God's favorite list. You know, our devotional life goes flat, our obedience to God uh, seems more like duty than delight. Reading the scripture seems really frustrating because we're not really hearing from God. And, and uh, it seems like the spirit is even quiet to us. Well, that's when it's time for us to get hold of these realities of heaven and start to think about them, start to meditate on them, because they are more true than the things I'm thinking right now. And if you need help, you have a brother and sister in Christ, just call them up and say just one thing, hello, will you tell me God loves me, please? Just tell me God loves me. Give me a scripture that proves it, and I'm going to be on that all day long. Because that's what we need. Our feelings are liars. God's word is true. The second reason to meditate is that the realities of heaven show us that we are kept by God's love. God's heart is set on you. God's heart and favor are set on you. Is that hard for you to believe? You know, for many of us, it's really hard to believe. I used to tell people all the time, God is going to be good to you. And in the back of my mind, I wasn't sure God was going to be good to me. Again, another tactic of the enemy. Do you see that God has set his love on you during the day? He is still watching over your soul with tender, loving care, even when your affections for him ebb and flow? Do you see how his mercies follow you during every given day? At the end of the day, whether it's cool or not, Give yourself some time to think about what happened to you during your day and ask yourself a few very vital questions about the mercies of God. Did I breathe today? Breathing is the mercy of God. If, if God didn't want you to have it, you would stop right now. Did I eat today? Yes, probably more than I should have, but it, that is the mercies of God too. Did I die today? Well, if you're asking yourself that question, you need more help than I thought. But anyway, think about it. You didn't die. You could have died. Anybody heard of the Widowmaker heart attack? Those are God's mercies and many, many more that followed you all throughout the day. And they come from God who has set his favor on you and cares for you with his tender love. That's your God. And the third reason is the realities of heaven revive our anticipation for home. When I went away to university, I went to uh, Montreal, to a school up in Montreal. It was, my, it was like my first, first time away from home. Now, I was living in Colorado at the time, so I was a pretty far piece away. That first year was really kind of struggling. I, I had a difficult time being away from home, away from my parents, my brother, whom I sort of loved, uh, my friends. Uh, Colorado's a beautiful, I loved it. I, I would dream and think about 
the places that I knew, the places I had been, the, the mountains I had hiked in, uh, all, all sorts of things. And, and they would just come to mind like out of the blue, and I'd feel so sad. And then one day I was in class. It was a theater class, by the way, an acting class. And in walked two guys with two guitars, and they're strumming Rocky Mountain High. I was a puddle. All I could think of was, I want to go home. Okay. That is what God wants to stir in us for heaven. That sense of longing for this place we've never been because it's a better place than where we have been. And as we are longing for that place, we are stirring up in ourselves affections for God and for the Lamb and for the Spirit to bring us to that place. And when you and I are on our deathbed and we're just about to close our eyes, we may be afraid of dying, but we should never be afraid of where we're going because the Lord is taking us to himself. Even though we've never been there, we've sort of been there by knowing the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for the past four weeks, uh, you have given us a glimpse of what awaits us in heaven, the new heaven and the new earth. It's for those who love you. And we have barely scratched the surface of the wonders that you have prepared for us. And the one thing that we know is that the riches of heaven are ours only because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us on a tree of life. Help us to keep our sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in honor. Uh, sometimes, Father, you know, we give ourselves to the siren calls of the world that look so good, so, so tasteful, even though we know they're passing away. So grant us the power to be firm, energetic, zealous in our devotion to the cause of the gospel, courageous in your name and generous in your love for the church and for the lost. Your word is rich in promises. Make your promises our delight as we cherish each one for our needs and help us to draw strength from your word to increase our faith day by day. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Let's all stand and sing together.